everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Nature in a Nutshell, the podcast which breaks down the latest ecology and environmental news. My name's Sophie, and I'm the Marketing Officer at SAIM, also known as the Chartered Institute of Ecology and Environmental Management. And as always, I'm joined by my two colleagues and co-hosts, Jason and Doug. Hi there, this is Jason. I'm SAIM's Head of Policy. And I'm Doug. I'm SAIM's Policy Officer. In today's episode, we're also joined by Bruce LaSalle, who's going to talk with us about soils in light of World Soils Day. Bruce is a soil and environmental scientist. He is the UK Director of Sustainable Land Management at Arcadis and the current past president of the British Society of Soil Science. Bruce studied forestry and soil science at the University of Wales, Bangor, and then went on to do a PhD on pedogenic and environmental change over the Holocene. Bruce has focused on soil surveys, soil handling, methodologies and habitat creation, restoration and translocation, and has worked across a wide range of habitats from floodplain and chart grasslands to upland blanket bog environments. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Sophie. It's great to be here with you today. Now, before we start talking all things soils then, Jason, what else are we covering in today's episode? Thanks, so, so along with soils, obviously, we're going to talk a bit about COP28, the Scottish Biodiversity Strategy Consultation, and I'm going to sneak in a quick update on BNG. So let's start off with soils then. Bruce, in a nutshell, why are soils so important generally, but also specifically in relation to climate change? Yeah, thank you. I was going to try to sum this up with a, a couple of quotes, I think. The first is a quote that's been attributed to someone called Paul Harvey the man behind the So God Made a Farmer speech, which reads, despite all our accomplishments, we owe our existence to a six-inch layer of topsoil and the fact it rains. And then the second quote is from Franklin D. Roosevelt from the time of the Dust Bowl disasters in the 1930s, who said, a nation that destroys its soils destroys itself. And I think these two quotes perhaps cover two of the key aspects of why soils are so important. Soils comprises thin skin at the land surface, which provides us with so many benefits. 95% of our food is grown in soil. Soils absorb and filter water. They support the vast range of habitats and landscapes around us. And they're an ecosystem in their own right, supporting a massive range of microorganisms about which there is still so much for us to learn. They're also the largest store of terrestrial carbon and so have a role to play in climate mitigation as well in relation to climate adaptation. And so essentially kind of the healthier the soil is, the more likely it is to be storing as much carbon as it's able to in any given location. But soils have been massively impacted by our activities. Estimated that I think one third of land globally is degraded and the rates of soil loss are absolutely massive. I think the estimates around 24 billion tonnes of soil per year is lost globally. And if you narrow that down into the context of the UK, it's estimated that the cost of soil degradation just in the UK is around two billion pounds per year. So I think essentially to answer the question, soils are absolutely critical part of our life support system alongside air, water and biodiversity. Essentially their potential and their ability to support us has been and continues to be degraded on a scale which we really can't sustain. Building on from all of that, so what is World Soils Day all about? The ethos of this day then? I think in that context of the importance of soils and the fact that we have historically and we continue to damage them, World Soildales, which is held on the 5th of December each year, is a means to focus attention on the importance of healthy soil and to advocate for the sustainable management of soil resources. It's a day that was recommended initially by an organisation called the International Union of Soil Sciences. 
And it was under the leadership of the Kingdom of Thailand and within a framework of the Global Soil Partnership that the FAO formally established World Soil Day as a global awareness raising platform. We can see the importance and, and how the importance of that has been grasped by many people in that, that key role played by soils in addressing the major resource, environmental, health and social problems which humanity is currently facing also prompted in 2015 the declaration of the International Decade of Soils to really try to ensure that the momentum at that time was maintained and increased over a much longer time period. You mentioned there about a sort of international perspective. I'm curious as to whether there are differing issues between the UK and Ireland and the rest of the world that we need to be aware of. To some extent, yes, and to some extent, no. And if I can explain that um, in a bit more detail, soils are hugely varied. In the UK alone, there are over 700 different soil types. And within each of those soil types, there'll be variations in the characteristics. Variations that are driven by a unique combination of factors from geology, topography, to climate, and the habitats present at any given location. So in the UK context, soils face pressures on a number of fronts from soil erosion, a concept of soil sealing, so creation of impermeable development on top of the soil, and then sort of pollution, compaction, loss of soil carbon, and so on. These pressures will be the same globally, even though perhaps we may see different climates and different land management practices, the pressures are probably going to be very, very similar. And so, yeah, so soils may be different. The societal context may be different, but the pressures and the outcome may be the same. And really, when I talk about outcome, I suppose on a global context, there's a fundamental that soils support our food system. And our food system for many is a global one. And so we do need to be very conscious of the impact of soils around the world, as well as in our own backyard. Coming on from that, I mean, what's really new in soil science then? Is there anything that SIME members and supporters should be aware of in terms of soils and some of these new researches? There's a lot we don't know about soils. I think soil scientists would agree with that. And I think that's in particular in relation to life in soils. And I think if I just focus on that firstly, that's a particularly important area, not least in light of the pandemic we've just faced. I'm sure there've been other discoveries recently, but it was widely reported in 2018 that a new antibiotic had been discovered from soil microbes, which was effective against superbugs. So, you know, a really, really important discovery. I think given what we faced over the last few years and the prediction that there probably will be future pandemics, keeping our soils healthy so they can retain the potential, even if we don't know what that potential is at the moment, to provide future sources of treatment has to be critical. It's worth highlighting the work that the SAIM Ecological Restoration and Habitat Creation Special Interest Group are doing around developing guidance in relation to rebuilding nature through habitat creation, restoration, and translocation. And this work is going to include an overarching guidance document on soils, as well as the wider physical environment that I'm leading on writing with Mark Nason and others. So hopefully that will really sort of give the information and put the importance of getting the soils right, right at the heart of habitat creation, restoration, and translocation projects. Are there things that beyond those specific things that that special interest group is doing that SIME and perhaps ecologists and environmental managers could be doing around raising the profile of soil or better protecting soils? I think absolutely. Soil science has often been referred to as the Cinderella science. You know, if you think of the focus and legislation that's been around air quality, water quality and biodiversity, soils have never had that level of engagement. So I think it really comes down to perhaps the fundamental of recognizing and talking about the role of soil within our natural system and just how critical this is. And I mentioned the word system there, and I think system thinking, seeing the component parts of the system, 
and their interrelationships needs to be really kind of a core element of the skill base across all those disciplines. I think in terms of what people can do, I think it's about ensuring that soil is part of the conversation. If all conversations around land use change, to use that phrase, start with questions about what soils are present, how healthy they are, and so on. Absolutely great basis to start building the plans for biodiversity or landscape enhancement in a way that means that those projects can be sustainable and they can be future-proofed as well in the context of climate change. I think the other point maybe to mention is all these people can play is seeking opportunities to collaborate and in particular to gain knowledge through data. All too often we monitor and put a lot of effort into monitoring the above ground part of the system but ignore the below ground aspects and I think that can play a part in why sometimes projects don't succeed particularly thinking then about climate change getting the soil conditions right to support a landscape and a habitat system in the future is going to be really important as well. On that sort of that theme of collaboration and looking to the future as well, I saw that the title of this year's World Soil Day is Soil and Water, a Source of Life. So why is that relationship? Why is that so important? And why is that something that needs to be focused on? I think I've mentioned soil is a living ecosystem in its own right, and it has structure as well, just as above ground ecosystems have structure and the niches that go along with that. That structure in soils enables them to absorb and to hold on to water making it available to plants. It filters the water and importantly, it slows the path of that water, that rainfall essentially back to the water courses. So it has these sort of multiple interrelationships and sort of fundamental linkages between the nature of the soil and the health of the soil and what happens to the water. And particularly moving through into a climate that's going to have more frequent and more extensive droughts, more intense rainfall, which is more likely to run off very quickly and cause flooding, etc. We need to ensure that our soils are healthy and the healthier they are, the closer to the natural state, the better able they're going to be to hold on to water, making that water available to plants, minimizing flood risk and all the things that go along with that. And maybe that brings me to one of those quotes from the start that, you know, despite all our accomplishments, we owe our existence to a six inch layer of topsoil and the fact it rains. You know, the two are very, very closely interlinked. And so I think if we come back to maybe the fundamental of our food system, irrespective of everything else, it's the soils, the water, the nutrients in the soils, and the availability of those to plants to grow that are kind of that platform, that foundation that we fundamentally rely on. Thanks. You talked there about um, the importance of healthy soils. And, and earlier on, you talked about some of the, the threats to them. Are there any particularly that stand out um, as threats to healthy soils in the UK and, and maybe Ireland that that we need to be aware of? Yeah, I, I think when you think about the threats to soils, um, essentially you think about our activities. What are we doing um, uh, you know, across the land? But also we have to recognize that those threats, also, and particularly the impact of those threats are exacerbated by, uh, have been and will be exacerbated by climate change. So I think some of the key things to focus on are Soil erosion. Soil erosion is not a problem in the rest of the world where perhaps we see some of these pictures of water, silt and water running off or dust bowl type scenarios. Soil erosion happens extensively in the UK. If the soil's eroding, then we're losing nutrients, we're losing volume of soil, we're losing carbon. That thin layer that I talked about, that skin is being reduced, reduced and reduced, and therefore the capacity for that to support us is being reduced. So soil erosion and sort of associated loss of carbon loss of nutrients as a result, 
And that I think is really important because we mustn't just think of the key nutrients like nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, etc. The nutrient quality of our soils affects the nutritional value of the crops we grow. And so the micronutrients are really important in that as well. And I think, again, then perhaps in a UK sort of island context, probably issues around soil compaction and soil sealing, they kind of have the same result in that they reduce the capacity of the soil to absorb water, increase flood risk, reduce the potential for the microbial community to be as flourishing and diverse as it possibly can be as well. So I think those are perhaps the ones that I would pick out. But I think it's important coming back to that concept of system thinking to recognize soils as a system, but also as part of the wider system. So if we damage one part of a soil system, it's likely that all of its functions are going to be affected. And if we damage the soils, then the functions that we get from the wider environment are also going to be damaged as well. And lastly, as a bit of a sort of an amateur soil nerd and myself, and to any sort of budding soil scientists listening, what advice would you give them for getting into a career of soil science? There's lots you can learn, I suppose, by reading, etc. But there's absolutely no substitute for looking at soils in situ. You know, soils don't form and develop or exist in isolation. And therefore, in turn, they then influence what we see in those locations. So just maybe for sort of general interest, when out and about, notice the soil. It's interesting when you talk to people, so few people actually notice what is under their feet or what they see. So it may be a roadside cutting. It may be on a hillside where sheep have created scrapes where you can see the profile, but even have a peer into excavations where there are repairs to services in the road outside your house and look at uh, the urban soil. I think the first part is just to see the soils, to recognize them in their unique environment and the unique characteristics that, that gives them as well. But then if you want to take that further, the um, British Society of Soil Science, or, or sort of BS Cubed as we call it, they do run a series of training courses, including the basics of describing and understanding soils. BS Cubed also have a, a number of regional groups who run sort of more local events, most of which include a field element. So going out to discuss soil compaction on agricultural land or looking at quarry restoration. These are all sorts of topics which will have relevance to ecologists as well. I was really lucky to go on a very pleasant one run by the Southeast Soils Discussion Group recently looking at the relationship between vineyards and soils and the importance of soil type to grape characteristics. So alongside of seeing the soils, I also got to taste the wines as well. Perhaps the other point to raise here is that soil science as a career can also be grounded in other disciplines as well. So, you know, soils we've talked about are critical to the functioning of the natural environment. So maybe you think of natural flood management systems, for example, you may have a focus on NFM. But you could come at that from a very detailed understanding of the soils and how the soils support that as well. And the same could be saying for habitat creation. In summary, it's seeing the soils, looking at what's around you, and then maybe looking to see if there's something local that's being run that you can get involved with to get into perhaps more detailed conversations, discussions about what we've been talking about, the role that soils play in so many aspects of our lives and the natural environment. Well, I think that's all of our questions for you, Bruce, today. Thank you so much for your time to come on the podcast. We really appreciate it. And yeah, that was a really insightful discussion. So thank you very much. So next up, I think Doug is going to be talking about COP28. Yep. COP28 started, well, today on the day we're recording or sort of late last night yesterday with some chats. And it will be running from the 30th of November till at least the 12th of December. So by the time this comes out, you know, we might sort of be in the midst of it. So who knows where we'll be at right then. But right now, so this is the sort of the 28th Conference of Parties uh, meant to push forward a global response on the climate emergency. 
conference this year is being hosted by the United Arab Emirates in Dubai. This is, you know, of course, a bitter controversy. So they are one of the world's largest exporters of oil and gas. And the president of this year's summit, Sultan Al Jabeir, is the UAE's Minister of Advanced Technologies and chief of its national oil company, Adnoc. There's been lots of controversy over both the UAE's position as host and this sort of conflict of interest from the president's role. For some campaigners, this seems to have damaged a lot of faith in the COP system. There's been lots of comments on how likely this year's COP is to bring real success for curbing emissions and keeping temperatures below two degrees. Around that, I would like to sort of make a note that when COPs are held in places like France or when they're held in other countries, which are massive fossil fuel producers and sort of, you know, all these sorts of things, this hasn't been as much of a discussion, but with the UAE it is. So I think that's just something to keep in mind that COPs in other countries, despite also being sort of quite big fossil fuel, either exporters or consumers, these sort of discussions haven't had the same maybe timber. So I think that's something to keep in mind on sort of the whole thing. Despite these reservations, some experts and sort of veterans of the COP system think that it has the potential to make a really big impact, particularly in terms of private financing climate change. So the president of this year's COP, obviously as an executive, he's also been involved with lots of different private companies, some relating to sustainability. And his big ambition for this year's COP is really to bring the private sector into this. You know, he's getting lots of oil companies and fossil fuel companies around the table. Obviously, they don't have a vested interest in making the climate situation better. Their vested interest is in fossil fuels. But the ethos is that to make change, you need these companies at the table. You know, these are the overwhelming producers of fossil fuels in our atmosphere. They are the primary reason that climate change is where it is. So to make change, you might need to get these people at the table. So that's sort of the big thing we might see out of this COP. So I think it'll be really interesting just to see where that develops, what lessons we can learn from this process in terms of getting people onto the table, getting them to talk and getting these discussions to happen. Because as we can see, the previous COPs, although you know incredibly important and really vital for where we are, haven't had the impact that maybe they needed to. You know, it looks like we're going to be smashing through the 1.5 degrees C that was agreed at the Paris Climate, which was one of the sort of the most famous, you know, the Paris Climate Accords are globally famous. They are sort of always held up as a massive achievement of the COP process. The system needs to advance. It needs to sort of evolve in terms of how we're going through it. As just came in today at this most recent COP, countries have agreed on the operationalism of the loss and damage fund. So this is a system to help poorer countries deal with the impacts of climate breakdown. This has been floated at previous COPs, particularly to do with historical fossil fuel producers, but also current fossil fuel producers, you know, big polluters to pay for the damages and compensate countries who are not responsible for the climate crisis, but are getting affected by it in a far larger capacity. So the creation of this fund has had a lot of stumbling blocks. It's been a really long process, but it looks like it's at least being tentatively agreed by delegates. A lot of early reactions are saying this is a really big step. You know, this is a real big lifeline, particularly to things like island nations who don't produce lots of fossil fuels, but are right now potentially at total risk of sea level rise. You know, sea level rise will wipe them off the map. So they really need this sort of support and they need the income from the countries who make their money from fossil fuels to pay for those losses and damages. So this is something that's come out today. Who knows what we'll see? Yeah, I think it's just worth keeping in mind that whatever we see, there will be lessons to learn that we can take forward at these conference parties because they are a really important process in us tackling climate change. Will we be writing a summary of what's to come out of COP? 
I'll be putting together a, a summary as it sort of goes on. And then at the end of it, we'll do a little write up and a roundup so that people can go onto our website and really easily see, you know, what are the big takeaways and what can we learn from it? Perfect. Thanks, Doug. For now, we're moving on to the Scottish Biodiversity Strategy with Jason. Thank you very much, Safe. Moving on to the Scottish Biodiversity Strategy Consultation. So I wanted to cover this this month because by the time we get round to the next one, it'll come out probably end of January. This will all have been submitted and we'll be moving on. So first of all, I have to say a huge thank you, though, to Annie, our Scottish Project Officer, and the Scotland Policy Group and the Chair, Julie, and our Scotland Vice President, Caroline, who put a huge amount of work into our consultation response that put together a really comprehensive response to this consultation that is just super key on biodiversity conservation and recovery going forward in Scotland. So it will be Scotland's strategic framework for biodiversity. The deadline, as I was talking about, is the 14th of December. So our full response probably won't quite have been published by the time the podcast comes out, but it hopefully will be very soon after that. The consultation is a critical step forward for how Scottish government intends to take forward nature conservation. So I just wanted to share some of the key points from our response. Overall, we're just really pleased to see the ambition in this strategy and really welcome that. It's probably the most comprehensive, challenging and far-reaching biodiversity strategy that Scotland's ever produced. And then to add on to that, Scottish Government have said that they will also be publishing statutory targets in the Natural Environment Bill, which is due next year. So we've got this rolling programme of real ambition coming out of Scotland, so that's really great. I think one of the key elements of it is this intent to mainstream and integrate biodiversity across government. That's really critical. Really like to see that mandated in some or other way so that there's a statutory underpinning to that to make sure it is delivered. Yeah, moving on to some of the key points that we want to highlight. So we'd have really liked to seen some of the actions from the framework being a bit more smart so that they're actionable and measurable and we can quantify success. But those are things that can be worked on. We would really have liked to have seen, or would like to see some more clarity on responsibility into the action plan so that we know who is responsible but also so that resources can be allocated appropriately so that we can make sure that they've got the funding, the expertise for delivery. We'd really like to see, and, and this is a bugbear across all sectors, I think, is that clear monitoring is critical and that needs to be scientific evidence-based and really transparent. There needs to be accountability on actual delivery and there needs to be the funding for that monitoring. Following on from that, we would really love to see some kind of clarity on sanctions for non-compliance or failure to deliver action plans We'd really like to see Environmental Standards Scotland being made the appropriate body for reporting on government progress for this. We don't think it's necessary to set up a new body. ESS could do this quite well. They would need the resources to do it, though. We're also curious as to the process going forward. Scottish governments have stated that they'd like to align with EU standards or exceed them, actually. So it's going to be interesting as EU develops its own nature restoration law and how that progresses the ecosystem restoration process how Scotland moves along with that and how this plan can align with it. We'll keep a watching brief on that one. Critical, I think, to the delivery of any biodiversity framework is having the expertise and understanding of the natural environment to underpin that. We go on about green jobs for nature. That's what we call the sector, I suppose. But we need to make sure that there's the support in place for future generations who come through because this isn't something that's going to happen in the next two or three years. This is a process that's going to continue for decades. Supporting the next generation coming through is just really critical. And we're really keen to see the realization of a national nature network to ensure that nature networks designated at local level, which is already in the plan, are linked across local authority boundaries, regional boundaries, and that are ecologically functional as well. So making sure we have that landscape scale approach to the framework. 
And then lastly, I suppose, just an add on to some of the things I've already mentioned in passing, the new biodiversity framework will place some major and potentially novel demands on Nature Scott, the agency for nature conservation in Scotland and local authorities. So it's a real plea to make sure that Scottish government makes sure that there are the appropriate resources, both in funding and in expertise to deliver this new plan, but hugely ambitious, hugely challenging as well, but really looking forward to this coming through in the coming years. Thanks, Jason, for that summary. Finally, just quickly, what is the latest on BNG or biodiversity net gain then? So sneakily and perhaps a little bit cheekily, I wasn't going to do an actual update, but just to mention that in the week that we're publishing or sorry, recording this podcast, there's been a whole slew of new announcements from DEFRA Natural England on biodiversity net gain. But I just wanted to do a little plug that we're going to be upgrading and revamping our web pages on biodiversity net gain on the SIAM website. We will be linking them through from the homepage. So we will keep adding that information as it comes out. So there will be a resource there. Hopefully, everything you need for biodiversity net gain, there's either some information there or some signposting to where you can find it. So just a little plug for our new BNG webpage. We're just going to end the episode now on our positive news segment. So we all know that the UK is one of the world's most nature depleted nations. Things are looking more hopeful for UK ecology as seabed numbers are reported to be soaring on Lundy Island in the Bristol Channel. So populations of puffins, Manx shearwaters and storm petrels have soared on the island thanks to efforts to eradicate rats, which arrived there as stowaways on ships years and years ago. And the rats have been preying on the eggs and the chicks of the seabirds, but population numbers of the birds have been growing since the island was declared rat-free in 2006. So the RSPB say that shearwater population has soared from about 600 in 2001 to more than 25,000 today. There are more seabirds nesting on the island than at any time since the 1930s. So yeah, a really positive story to share and gives a bit of hope that it's entirely possible to come together to restore nature across the whole of the UK and Ireland. Thanks for listening to another episode of Nature in a Nutshell. Please don't forget to go ahead and rate and review the podcast. We will be back in early January for another episode, but this one will sound a little bit different. We'll be joined by Saeem CEO, Sally Haynes, for a roundup of top stories affecting people and nature in 2023. We'll also be looking ahead to what we expect to see in 2024. So a nice summary to sort of start the new year off with. But yeah, we'll see you next month.